This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week featuring such an interesting person and an incredibly accomplished man. Mitchell or Moish Silk has risen to the highest echelons of government activity as the Assistant Secretary for International Markets at the United States Treasury, was very visible as a Hasidic Jew. I got to watch his nomination uh, on one of the streaming channels and just an incredible story and really heartwarming to watch him and his family there listening to the proceedings in the Senate. Really, really neat thing to watch. And I'm excited to bring you his story today. As you'll hear very clearly, he has a deep and penetrating understanding of finance, both when it comes to the China region and also globally, where he has a tremendous overarching understanding of the global economic system. So those of you who are into finance and the markets and understanding how the global economy functions will be really interested by this. And those of you who like a good human interest story about a unique Jewish personality rising the ranks in the executive branch of government will be attracted to this journey as well. A reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you are listening, whether that is Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher. Please let your friends and family know about this podcast as well. Send in comments or questions to Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with the Assistant Secretary for International Markets at the U.S. Treasury, Mitchell Silk. We're here with Mitchell Silk, the newly appointed Assistant Secretary for International Markets at the Department of Treasury. I hope I got that right. How are you, Mitchell? I'm doing great. Amazing. And uh, I've seen so many wonderful stories in the news about your appointment, your background, coming from a uniquely Hasidic background, which we'll get into a little bit. And obviously, that's not the, uh, the typical Undersecretary of Treasury kind of profile. So certainly something that we in the Jewish community can be proud of and, and would love to learn more about. So tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, and uh, where it all started. I'm born in Chicago. Both parents are first-generation American. Grandparents are all Eastern European. I'm, I'm proud to, uh, to be a pure Galicianer. Now, for those unfamiliar with what, with what that means exactly, the term Galicianer has a, has a distinct implication for people who know, but for those uninformed, maybe fill in what that, what that represents. Well, gee, that represents quite a bit. So geographically speaking, it represents a, a small part of Hungary, almost all of the Ukraine, and a little bit of probably uh, Romania, and a little bit of Poland, I would guess. But um, beyond the geography, the Galicianer are known for being uh, extremely frugal, I suppose, and, and pretty... Uh, sharp at the wit and, and certainly very sharp at the tongue. 
So your parents came over from there, they were born there, and, and when did, or your grandparents, when did everyone migrate over? So my grandparents actually came to the States between the late 1800s and uh, early 1900s. My last grandparent, uh, my maternal grandfather, arrived in Chicago in 1920. Wow, so you have real deep roots in the Chicago area. Yeah, my... Um, my family has been in Chicago since uh, the late 1800s, and pretty much everybody except for myself and my sister are, are still there. Well, well, you even say it correctly, say Chicago, so I know you're authentic. <laughs> so my, the oldest of our young crop, who's going to be bar mitzvah soon, who born and bred in Borough Park, pronounces it correctly as well. Uh, nobody <laughs> understands where he's talking about in Chayder, but he says it properly at least. That's real, uh, real nachas, real, uh, <laughs> real Jewish pride there. Uh, it's interesting. I recently interviewed Rabbi Beryl Wine on the podcast, and of course, a very illustrious Chicago background. And his grandfather, Itchemeyer Itch- Levine, I believe it was, who founded the Skokie Yeshiva, as they call it. So got a lot of Chicago history in that episode. Uh, so where did you grow up going to schools and things like that? Uh, so... My family grew up on the West Side, which is where the whole of the Jewish community that emigrated from Eastern Europe into Chicago lived. You know, not dissimilar from uh, changes in demographics in, in New York. I would say I'm not exactly familiar with, you know, Chicago Jewish history, but probably in the 40s and 50s, folks started to, to move out to different neighborhoods, some to West Rogers Park, and then some a little bit farther northwest of Rogers Park by a mile or two or three miles. So we, in the year I believe that I was born, my family moved from the west side to a town called Morton Grove, and we were a block on the other side of the border from Skokie. So I actually went to school in Skokie, but we lived in Morton Grove. Buffalo Grove, I know. Morton Grove, I have not not heard of before. Well, Buffalo Grove did not exist when I was a kid. It was actually just Buffalo, just roaming around. <laughs> uh, so did you go to a Hasidic school growing up, or where did you go to, to, uh, to school? So there really was not the, uh, the definition and divisions of, of the community. When I was growing up, it was pretty homogeneous. So pretty much everybody in my neighborhood went to one school. I attended a school that was run by uh, Rabbi Hecht and his wife uh, in Skokie. And I, I, I attended public school and then every day and on Sundays we would go to Hebrew school. Okay, got it. Was your family observing or what was their, what was their uh, religious profile? We grew up in a traditional home and kept all of the traditions, probably not to the, to the same level as, as folks today, and certainly not to the same level as we do in, in the home today. But we were a traditional family. When we would go to Bubby and Zadie, of course, everything would be on the mark and, and the, way, the way it should be. So were you interested in politics or in economics early on? What, what were kind of your early academic pursuits? You know, when I was young growing up in Chicago, I was very much into my bicycle. I really liked my, my bike, and we used to bike around quite a bit. I, I can't say that I had a, 
a great interest in economics and finance at a young age. That, <laughs> How much that for came, the next bike? You know? <laughs> that, that, that came a little bit later. Were you a big Cubs, Cubs fan? What, was your, uh, what were your teams of choice? So we used to go to Cubs games. That was the popular team. I think there was a practical reason for that as well. You know, my mom was not so keen on us going to Comiskey Park where the White Sox played. South side, um, yeah. <laughs> different neighborhood today, but in, in those days, it was pretty dicey. Right. Seems like all the Jews growing up were Cubs fans, and many of them were hot dog vendors, too, in, uh, in Wrigley. So you, I guess at some point, you went to high school and then, I imagine, to college. Where did life take you? Did you stay in Chicago for college or move on? Uh, so my family left uh, Chicago for Florida in the early 70s. Um, and so after I finished high school in South Florida, I actually went to study for the, the summer immediately out of high school at Middlebury, Middlebury College in their summer school. Of, they have an intensive language program. So I did the School of Chinese in 1979 and did a summer of Mandarin there, which was equivalent to a full academic year of, of studying college. Kind of like an ulpan for, uh, for Mandarin. Exactly. You know, same, same theme, you know, a lot of Jewish people and, and, and a lot of Chinese. A lot of Chinese. <laughs> so what was the impetus for that? Like why, why Mandarin? Was that like a sort of an emerging field at the time? Did you feel like there was business prospects that would open? Yeah, so if I was speaking to a general audience, I would call it fluke. If I was speaking to this audience, I would call it hashgacha. So the, the backdrop is that right after my bar mitzvah, I had to go out to work to support our, our family's finances, to help out. And it happened that there was a couple of young boys my age that had moved into our neighborhood from Hong Kong. And so I, I basically helped them kind of acclimate to America. We became friendly and I got a job in their family's restaurant and worked in Chinese restaurants for about six years to uh, help out uh, with our finances and save up money also for college. And in the course of that period, I actually picked up Chinese on the job. The interesting twist and tidbit is that the Chinese, quote unquote, that I was learning was a, a dialect called Cantonese spoken by the folks in Guangdong province in southeastern China, which is the source of probably 95, 97, 98 percent of the Chinese that emigrated to America up until the 70s or, or maybe even into the 70s. So I would say probably 98 percent of the Chinese in America spoke Cantonese but it's a dialect that only 5% of the Chinese in China speak. So when I found out that I might be a little bit limited in the scope of people that I might be able to communicate with in Chinese, I then decided that I should probably learn Mandarin. And so that was the impetus for me going to Middlebury. Did you have a sense that this would be useful for you in some practical way, in some professional capacity, or you didn't really... You didn't really know. I did it because I was really interested. I also did it because I knew the better I was at Cantonese, the, the quicker I'd be able to get food out of the kitchen for my customers. <laughs> Got it. Now, 
during this early period, did you have a chance to visit China or that was still a ways off? Uh, I actually went to China in between my junior and senior years in high school. I went over to Hong Kong with my friends. I actually visited the, the synagogue there, which was not in those days holding regular services and uh, met, met a bunch of people that were in the Jewish community. And then I traveled in to China, but only to the city that is directly across the border. Uh, it's a special economic zone called Shenzhen. And then I also went into Guangzhou, which is the, the capital of Guangdong province. So did you know at this point, and guess you were in middle, was Middlebury College where you did your full undergrad, or that was just for this intensive? No, I, I, I just went there for the, for the Chinese. After uh, Middlebury, I ended up going to Taiwan to study for a year to perfect my Mandarin. And it was after that that I decided I would transfer into a program that offered a good set of offerings for international relations and Chinese. I applied to a few places and got into Georgetown School of Foreign Service, which is where I did my bachelor's degree. Right in my backyard over here. Right. Go Hoyas. That was the, right. uh, I guess, the heyday of John Thompson, I would imagine. Big East. So what was your experience in Georgetown? And, and was it clear at that point you were going to do something in international relations and something with Chinese government or that kind of a general area? My experience at Georgetown was a real eye-opener. It was really great. It, it was the first time that I had been out in, in a little bit more of a cosmopolitan setting, let's call it. And so I thoroughly enjoyed my, my career the couple of years that I was there. Uh, it gave me the opportunity to, um, to study and analyze a couple of aspects of Chinese history and international relations that have defined my career. I certainly wasn't focused and didn't really know what exactly I wanted to do professionally. And uh, at the same time, we were a rather limited pool of Jewish students at, at Georgetown. And I met a couple of friends that I'm, I still keep up with today and, you know, had the opportunity to attend the then only single synagogue in the D.C. area uh, called uh, Kesher Israel. Um, so that was, that was very nice. I, there were a number of people in the community that were really uh, good to me and, and a few of my friends at Georgetown. And it was always a pleasure to go in and, and dive in there and spend time with folks that were working at high levels in government. But the real highlight of going to shul, at least on, on Shabbos, was to, uh, to sit next to Herman Wook. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Did you get to build a relationship with him? Yeah, you know, limited. I mean, uh, as a you know, pretty young kid who doesn't know too much, uh, I felt a little bit shy and uh, wasn't necessarily prepared to engage in uh, deep discussions with him. But he was a very, very nice man. And I have, I've since read all of his books, including his most recent one, his last one, The Lawgiver. And uh, he's just, an, he was an extraordinary writer. Yeah, I really regret that I didn't get to interview him before he passed. I guess I had plenty of time. I just didn't uh, take advantage. He lived a long life. So at Georgetown, what did you really specialize in? And what did you kind of start to dig down into in terms of future for yourself? So 
I really took the courses that were of interest to me. My degree is in, uh, it's a Bachelor of Science in Foreign Service, uh, which is a degree that's offered by the Edmund Walsh School of Foreign Service. The uh, curriculum is very, very intensive, and there are a number of required courses. So I went in as a transfer student, and so the required courses took up a good part of the offerings that I took. To the extent that I was able to um, choose my own offerings, much of it was focused on China. I did a, a large number of courses in Chinese history, mainly more modern history. And I, I wrote my undergrad dissertation on a topic that relates to Imperial China's um, experience with the outside world, particularly relating to public international law. I took a number of econ courses and courses relating to international economic development and China's economy, and then spent quite a bit of time um, looking at China's practices and approaches to foreign relations. Now, back in, this is, I guess, in the 80s. So I know nowadays, of course, China's is like behemoth and sort of a, a huge topic and very controversial, or whatever. What was what was China like back then? Was it considered a, a major international superpower? You know, was, was it something that loomed large in the public consciousness? Or was it more of like a niche kind of thing that you were diving into, like nobody was really engaging in this kind of field? So I think two, two different angles to that question. One of them is what, what China's position was in the world. And, you know, the view at the time was that they were, they were most certainly up and coming. They, they just basically come out of the Cultural Revolution and were picking up with uh, opening up to the outside world, both through trade, export-oriented uh, economic growth, and then also opening up to foreign investment. So level of economic development still relatively on the lower end, but still uh, the international community recognized them as a very, very important power and certainly with immense market potential, right? From the, another angle, which is how folks were looking at China in the academic world, uh, it, was, it was a fairly early day on a relative basis in academic study of China. There were a relatively small number of China experts throughout the academic community, some focusing on you know, literature and some focusing on certain aspects of economic development, uh, some focusing on domestic politics, and some focusing on foreign relations. And generally, if you were studying in the area, you would know who the couple of kind of leaders were, and you would certainly know who the largest part of the community was. Today, much larger, much diverse, and much harder to keep track of things. And, and it's safe to say that there are people looking at every single aspect to the min, most minute areas of China. So you really got in kind of on the ground floor when this was sort of an emerging discipline and became popular throughout the course of your career, which sometimes, you know, timing is, is also everything in, in many ways. Yep. So where did you go from, from there? Did you stay in D.C.? Did you work in government? Did you... Did you move elsewhere? So I had a, I had a little bit of a, a moment. Um, I guess it was toward the end of my junior year 
wasn't really sure what I wanted to do after I finished. I had a mentor at the time whose name was Thomas Robinson, who was uh, one of the experts in the day uh, of China's practice of foreign affairs. And he was my mentor at Georgetown. We had a very relatively short conversation about my, uh, my career path. He asked me three very simple questions. The first one was, uh, did I want to be a dentist? And I said, no, no real interest. His second question was, do you want to be a doctor? And I said, well, gee, I haven't done pre-med and I'm not that good with blood. So then he said, um, okay, well, you're going to law school. <laughs> was he Jewish? <laughs> it sounds like a Jewish father, you know? <laughs> uh, or a Jewish mother. No, he, he, didn't fit, he didn't fit either criteria, ethnicity or gender. I ended up uh, applying to a bunch of law schools. There were relatively few that had leading Asian law or even Chinese law offerings. I really had my heart set on going to Columbia. Harvard had an East Asian legal studies program at the time, but the, the founder of it, when I was starting law school, was actually practicing law, so he had taken time off. And interestingly, also another point of Hashkafa, during my junior year and as I was writing my senior thesis, I became very close with the head of the East Asian Legal Studies program at University of Maryland. And it's an interesting story because that professor, Hong Da Cho, actually started the first Chinese law program in the States, which was at Harvard, with a fellow named Jerome Cohen, who's still around. And in the 70s, uh, Professor Cho saw that he was not going to get a professorship or tenure at Harvard. And so he took up a tenured offer at the University of Maryland. And that's how we ended up there. I like him already. There we go. <laughs> yeah. I was in contact with him through my two years at Georgetown, and I was accepted to Maryland. And as a sweetener, he offered me a position to be the assistant director of the East Asian Legal Studies program while I was going to law school. So I saw that as an opportunity to attend an, an okay, but not top-level law, law school, but important to me, I was able to basically be the right-hand man of one of the leaders in the field. And it was a great decision because I got a great legal education, I had some really, really excellent professors, and I was able to really be at the forefront of, of the field in terms of editing my professor's papers, doing a lot of my own writing, and having the opportunity to speak at conferences and whatnot. Very cool. Now, I imagine at some point in here, you, as you mentioned, that your family was traditional and so forth, but not necessarily strictly observant. And you, at some point, you know, became more so. Was that happening in parallel to this? Was that something that took place later on in your, in your life? What was, where was Judaism or where was your Jewish identity at this whole period? Yeah, so I would divide that into two, two questions. There's an issue of kind of keeping to traditions and, you know, level of strict observance. And then there is what the family and what the household was like. So I think, you know, the one element of constant throughout my whole life has been our outlook, my family's outlook on traditional Jewish life. You know, my, my grandparents were, were sons and daughters of Rabbanim and Seifrim. And we grew up in a very, very traditional household. It may be that we didn't follow everything to the T as folks do today, but there was a very clear identity and awareness 
of traditions that go back to the old country that we've always maintained. I would say that probably took on a little bit more starting in college. I lived in the Park Heights area during my three years of law school, just on, on Taney right off of Park Heights. Sure. I lived right off, uh, right off of Taney for a couple of years in the uh, Heather Ridge development, so right near there. Yeah, so I was able to maintain a, a regular chavrusa during those years, and, and actually one of my chavrusas that I started with when I began law school, I continue to learn with to this day. Wow. And for the benefit of those listening, you know, they're only hearing. They can't see your face or my face, but I know that you will have a look of shock on your face when I tell you that I've been learning with this fellow Rabbi Avram Steinberg for over 30 years. And the reason why you'll have a look of shock on your face is because I know you're saying that I don't look a day over 25, right? <laughs> I was going to say 27, but yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the other side of it was that I was really gifted. And again, another point of Hashkacha to have an extraordinary professor in law school, Yitzhak Breitowitz, who is a wonderful person, an extraordinary Talmud Chacham. And so to have him as a professor and essentially be able to spend almost every Shabbos meal with him was, a, you know, was something really, really nice. So you would spend Shabbos in, in Woodside at the time? No, he was in Baltimore. Oh, he lived in Woodside. That was, that was pre-Woodside. Wow. Yeah, he did, not, he did not move to Woodside until after I finished law school. Unbelievable. I didn't know you had such deep Baltimore roots. Baltimore. Balmer. Balmer. There we go. Chicago and Balmer. So you, uh, you finished law school and did you stay in the area? Because at some point you looks like you moved up to New York, which, uh, you know, I guess nobody's perfect, but when did that start to happen? So I knew that if I wanted to continue to uh, combine a functional expertise like law with my regional interest in Asia and particularly China, that I'd need to go to a center, a larger commercial center. And I had my eye focused on New York. In my final year of law school, I actually applied to a very competitive program, which is run by the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. It's under the Committee for Scholarly Communication with the PRC. They, at the time, I don't know if they still do, gave out up to 10 postdoctoral scholarships for folks from the States to go to China for a year. And I applied along with about a thousand other folks in my year. And I was one of the nine that were chosen. Uh, I think there were 10 chosen and one dropped out. And I was the only person to be chosen for law. I was able to be attached to Beijing University's law faculty, which is really at the time was the most prestigious law faculty in China. And I did a research project, I pursued a research project, and then I taught law courses in Chinese at Beijing University, Shanghai Institute of Foreign Trade, and Shenzhen University during that year. And then I also got some practical experience on a volunteer basis, like an internship with one of the international law firms that had an office in Beijing. And so I spent that first year out of school actually in, in Beijing. Was it intimidating to teach Chinese natives in their mother tongue as, a, as someone who had learned it? I can imagine, you know, someone, I know Hebrew, but like to teach Israelis in Hebrew, even if my Hebrew is decent, would be like an overwhelming 
kind of proposition for me. Yes, all of my students were very, very intimidated of me. <laughs> I guess not you by them, huh? Right. Well, you know, you know, I mean, to put it into context, it was 1986. This was a relatively early crop of, of university students that had exposure to foreigners. And up until that time, largely the Chinese approach to education was very Confucian grounded in rote memorization. I went in and I decided that I was going to use the Socratic method, which required folks to actually answer questions. And they really, really were intimidated. But I'm, I'm very pleased that within a, a period of time, they opened up and all of them, I think, got a lot out of my courses. And, and many of them went on to, um, to pursue very successful careers in law. What do you think is early on, especially, what was alluring to you about that, the whole Chinese culture? Was there, were there elements of the society that, that you found really interesting or exciting or different? from your suburban Chicago upbringing and in, in ways that you, you thought were really compelling for you? It was very mystical. There was a lot of mystique. And I think that that's what was interesting for me. Very rich culture. And that was a, a you know, key drawing factor. What was the uh, Jewish life like when you went back at that time? Was it starting to emerge a little bit? Were business people starting to travel there at that point? It was very, very sparse and I would go to Hong Kong once a month. I actually spent six weeks of, or maybe two months of that time in Shenzhen right across the border from Hong Kong. So I would go into Hong Kong every weekend. When I was in Beijing and Shanghai, I would go once a month down to Hong Kong. Very little available by way of food. Um, so I had to bring almost everything. Kept a very simple diet. There were no real organized communities. I mean, there were, there were a group of folks in Beijing which kept to reform traditions, and that was about it. Was Chabad not there yet? No, no. So the, the present rabbi of Chabad in Beijing was at Ben Bias by me in Hong Kong during my years in Hong Kong. He didn't go to Beijing until many years later. During the whole corona situation, I've seen videos from, is it Rabbi Freundlich? Was that, is that the yeah. one? Yeah, Shimon Freundlich, yeah. Yeah, he's been sending out videos and posting things on WhatsApp that I've gotten passed around. The only time I've ever seen him. So, okay, there's been a long, obviously, until recently, and I, which I do want to get to, the whole recent events of your appointment and nomination, all that. And 1986, that's a long uh, period in between. Did you have kind of a steady career path at that point? Were you working just in law mostly, international relations? What was kind of the, the bulk of that period in between? Uh, from a professional standpoint. Yeah, so let me just run through the, the 30 years in a, in a quick blink. So we, we've been through 86, 87 when I was in Beijing. In 87, I, I moved to New York and got a job with a very venerable kind of old line white shoe Wall Street law firm called Hughes, Hubbard & Reed at the time. It was located in the Irving Trust Building at One Wall Street. And I got a job in their banking department doing bank banking corporate work. At the time, they had just started a Pacific Basin practice focusing on Asian clients, mainly Japanese. And so the fact that I had China experience was attractive to them. I worked there and, and one of, at one other firm in New York when around 91 or so, China started to, to ramp up considerably their 
policies to attract in foreign capital, and in particularly in the energy and infrastructure area. So there were a few firms that were well known in that space in New York that went to Hong Kong and opened offices there to capitalize on opportunities in the China market. One of those firms was called Chadbourne and Park, and they recruited me to open their Hong Kong office in 1992. And I spent from 92 until 2005, essentially working on energy and infrastructure matters and, and also some general M&A and financings in Hong Kong. I left Chadbourne in 96 and joined the firm that I would be with for the last 20 years of my career, which is uh, one of the largest elite global law firms called Allen & Overy. Uh, I came back to New York in 05 and started up their U.S.-China group, which continues to thrive. And the nexus of A&O to my present position is that one of my former partners, a fellow called Heath Tarbert, who is a bank regulatory and finance expert, so he and I worked quite a bit together on issues for my then Chinese banking clients. And uh, Heath, who had served uh, in the White House and also clerked on the Supreme Court and had worked on the Hill, was um, appointed at the beginning of the administration to the position that I now hold. And so I mentioned to him that I would be interested very much in serving. And uh, energy and infrastructure and China, as, as you know, are are very um, key areas for the administration. And so I came in uh, at the beginning of the administration to work alongside of Heath and our then Undersecretary David Malpass, who's now the president of the World Bank. My original position was Deputy Assistant Secretary, and I looked after a portfolio that covers investment, energy, and infrastructure. What made you want to go to the government? It sounds like you know you, you were drawn to follow this partner of yours uh, and to try to make that overture. Why? I mean, I imagine you were happily working in, in a major law firm, and it's you know generally well compensated in those firms relative to government pay and things like that. So, what? Why government? I had always wanted to serve. I had a bit of a decision when I was at Georgetown, as you'll probably be aware. The School of Foreign Services a feeder for the State Department, and I had considered at the time taking the foreign service exams. I made a conscious decision to go a slightly different route, which is to work in private sector, gain expertise, and then maybe go in later at a higher level. And so the plan worked out. This opportunity presented itself, and I, I saw it as a very good opportunity. At the same time, I felt that you know I'd pretty much done it all. I had built up a very, very nice practice, which I handed over, and I just was saying to myself, you know, how many more billion-dollar deals can you do? It's time to do something different. And that has worked out extraordinarily well for me because my portfolio now is very, very wide. But when I first came in, I was very focused on energy and infrastructure, trade finance, and development finance, and China. And my former work was very much focused on micro matters, project by project. Here, I'm able to take my skills and my expertise that I've built up over a period of decades and apply those in a much more impactful way on a macro level where I'm looking at the same issues, but from the standpoint of a whole country 
and the policy issues that a government may confront in those areas. And one of the key programs that I have developed is called America Crece. It means in Spanish, the Americas grow. It's a program that we pursued and continue to pursue in Latin America. And we have a corollary program in Asia that we're working on under a program started by the State Department called the Asia Edge. We're working with over 20 countries in these two programs. The vast majority of those are developing countries. And what we do is we help those countries unleash value in their energy and infrastructure sectors by identifying obstacles that are getting in the way of growth and providing uh, suggestions on policy solutions in dealing with those obstacles in a way that those countries can better utilize the private capital markets as opposed to subsidies. What would be an example? A country has access to oil, I guess, or something along, or some kind of energy source, and you help them bring it to market? Like, what are the obstacles they might face? And like, what are you offering for them? So let me divide the world of finance into two big buckets, one of them being public finance and one of them being private finance. Traditionally, up until 20 odd years ago, almost all um, infrastructure was developed through public finance. So that means that the funding largely comes from government balance sheet and the greatest portion of it is funded indirectly from the taxpayers. The work that I've been engaged in provides solutions and suggestions for our partners to rely less on public finance and more on the private bank debt and capital markets to finance energy and infrastructure needs. So if country A, B, C, or D wants to grow any one of five or six aspects of their energy sector or five or six aspects of their infrastructure sector, what we do is we look at their position and we say, you might want to consider grouping things in this way, structuring projects in this manner, and pursuing policies and promulgating laws and regulations that will support those structures so that you will be able to attract private capital in and then be less reliant and less burdensome on the public balance sheet. So that means they would be taking on investors, basically, to to help build these infrastructures. Is that essentially what's happening? So, yes, they would be creating policy, legal, and regulatory frameworks that would attract in private investment. And so is the goal from an American standpoint, as we would say maybe in Talmudic parlance, is it lishma is just to be a beacon and to help others and to export our expertise and so forth? Or is there some sort of self-interest, so to speak, for lack of a better term, in the United States helping other countries develop various parts of their economy? So this is a, this is a growth program, pure and simple. And private capital is the most efficient and impactful way that we see growth happening. It is the best financing channel for our developing country partners. There are other alternatives that are available out there. There are some other countries that would like to pursue programs that are are different from ours that rely not as heavily on private capital. And a lot of those other alternatives from our standpoint are problematic. 
from a lot of them involve subsidized financing. And if there are subsidies provided by another government to support their folks, we feel that that does not always provide the best alternative and the best end product for the countries that we're working with. And we've seen quite a lot of those offerings present irregularities, for example, uh, in procurement, corruption, and whatnot. So overall, when we look at growth, we want to realize and help our partners achieve healthy growth. And we believe that what we're putting, the proposition that we're putting forward is the most impactful way of achieving healthy growth. We would love to see our programs benefit U.S. industry so that folks here can have more commercial opportunities and we can create more job opportunities in the domestic economy. But the framework that we're putting forward falls in under the aegis of good growth generally. So it's really a goodwill gesture in many ways to developing countries that could use expertise. It's goodwill, but it's goodwill for a number of reasons, the most important of which is that it is the best way of achieving healthy growth for the global economy. For the global economy. We're part of a, of a much bigger economy, and by helping others, we're also helping sort of all, all ships rise with the tide. Tell me a little bit about the uh, nomination process, the confirmation process. There was a hearing. I watched a little bit of online um, and it was very touching. You had your family there and your children and everything. What was that uh, all about? And it seems like that happened later in the process, although it sounds like you were in government already earlier. The initial position, something that you did confirmation for, and then that changed. Like, what was the actual trajectory? Right. So I'll just run through it real quick with you. I was originally, my original position as deputy assistant secretary, uh, was was appointed by the secretary. It's within the secretary's authority to appoint deputy assistant secretaries. And my original position was not a Senate confirmed position. So I joined through the appointment of the secretary in October of 2017. There were some changes in 2019. Our then undersecretary was appointed to the World Bank, uh, David Malpass. And so he left and his slot opened up the then assistant secretary, my former law partner, Heath Tarbert, then became the acting undersecretary. And it was at that time that I became the acting assistant secretary. Around that time, the whole process of my being nominated and then confirmed for the assistant secretary began. And I'll just run you through really quickly the, the long and many steps process of being confirmed. Uh, First step is that the secretary has to put you forward. So there's a process there. You then get kicked into a White House process, which involves the PPO, the Presidential uh, Personnel Office, vetting you. And then from there, you go through a background check with the FBI and financial screening for disclosures and, and ethics purposes. When you're through that, successfully, you will formally be nominated by the president. Once the formal nomination comes down, you then get kicked into a Senate process. The Senate has its own vetting procedures. Each of the nominees are required to fill in a Senate form that's dictated by the committee that they're before. Part of it is experience and part of it is financial disclosure. 
after they are finished with their background and their financial review, if the committee is minded to move forward, you will be put forward for a hearing before the committee that looks after your particular role that you've been nominated for. I had my hearing in November of 2019 before the banking committee, and that's available uh, for viewing on the internet. I was voted out of committee about two weeks after that unanimously, and then the last phase of the process is to be put to a vote of the full Senate. And that vote did not occur until about two and a half weeks ago. And I think it happened on a Tuesday. The president signed my commission on the Friday, um, and I was sworn in on the Monday. That was a good job. You got to go in with that signature <laughs> taken care of. Yeah. What was the experience like for you personally? And how aware were you of your visibility as an observant Jew throughout all of this? And how has that kind of impacted the whole process for you? Uh, it was a very, very long process, a fair bit of uncertainty at every stage. So I would say for the better part of a year, it was, it was not the easiest, but I kept my eye on the, on the long term. You know, basically, that's what I can say. As a Jewish person, were you very conscious of the way you were being perceived and, and, and things like that? And I guess that's a ge- kind of a general question. As you travel the world and you're in all these different environments, you may be the only visible Jew that, that many of these people have encountered. How, how aware are you of that as you travel through or, or as you've gone through some of these really unique professional developments? You know, I, I walk around with a black hat. So, you know, I'm, I stand out, let's put it that way. So when, you know, you walk into the White House with a black hat and a beard, you're, you know, you kind of stand out a little bit. So I, I would say very simply that I'm, I'm pretty conscious of perceptions and, and people looking in. And so that's what really pushes me to keep the guardrails up and ensure that I comport and, and speak and, and behave in, in the most appropriate way at all times. There's a part of substance, you know, one has to deliver on the substance, but there's all, also appearance and delivery. And so I'm, I'm very conscious of, of the perceptions. It's kind of interesting. I'll just give you one, one little vignette to illustrate. I traveled to Israel with the secretary a while ago, and we mainly had meetings with the finance ministry, and we met with the prime minister. We did do one session on high tech where we met with the founders of, of a number of the very successful Israeli high techs. I mean, really very, very interesting, high-level people. And we had that meeting in a beautiful venue, which was the meeting room for Asia Torah in the old city. Wow. <laughs> so we went in, you know, with the secretary. We had one of the undersecretaries there and a few other people, myself. And we gathered and we had our meeting. And then we went out on one of the balconies to look at the Koisel. As we were going back in, I don't know the Asia Torah people very well one of the very senior guys, you know, walks up to me. And apparently somebody said to him that one of your rabbis appears to have crashed the party with the secretary. <laughs> and I think, I think he was minded to bounce me out of the you were meeting. You supposed to get taken out. <laughs> no, he learned that I was a deputy assistant secretary of the treasury. Oh, no. <laughs> he must have felt 
quite embarrassed <laughs> at that. I can't say, but we've, we've developed a pretty good relationship since then. That's great. How is your, sort of starting to wrap up over here, you started coming with this real China specialty, but it sounds like now your portfolio is global, right? So how have you kind of been prepared? Are you seeing like very different needs and cultural sensitivities in different parts of the world? How do you kind of learn all these different cultural nuances and, and sort of different you know, requirements of each particular subsection uh, when your training was really, I guess, in, in a pretty narrow, very specific arena? So I'll take that in two aspects of that. One is, you know, regional country, like geographic, and the other is functional. So from the functional side, you know, let me just be clear that I worked for over three decades in finance and banking, corporate commercial law. And my practice touched on pretty much every aspect uh, of finance. And the work that I do now, um, my portfolio is international markets. And so from the standpoint of substance, you know, give or take greater or lesser degrees, the functional issues that come across my desk, I have experience in. Some areas a lot more and some areas not as much, but general grounding, I'm there. To the extent that I need to bone up on matters, specifics or deep dives, you would not believe the extraordinary staff that we have here uh, at Treasury. The career folks here, some of whom have been here for decades, are some of the brightest and most experienced folks in finance that I've, I've ever had the pleasure and honor to work with. So on the geographic side, I worked at a global law firm. Many of my matters cut across many different countries in one transaction. The greatest exposure and experience that I had was in Asia, maybe not as much in other areas. I mean, I did deals basically in, in almost every continent, but there are plenty of times when I need to kind of get up to speed with the nuances of a particular country, and especially when I'm traveling there, the culture. And so for that, we've got, again, extraordinarily experienced and deep staff, some of whom are here at Treasury and Main Treasury and will travel along with us. And then we've got attaches all over the world. And so, you know, we've got great assistance from them. And then wherever I travel, we've got a point of contact at the embassy or consulate where we are, and, and the folks at the State Department are just extraordinary about looking after us. Amazing. Just in closing, I know that, again, you, your children featured prominently in the, in, the, in the hearing in terms of just their presence, and your, your family was there, and obviously you have an extremely demanding job. Your family is still, I believe, based in New York, um, and you come down to D.C. for work, of course, uh, and I imagine traveling all over the world. How do you balance all of these, these different things you know, personally? And how do you make sure that you don't burn out? How do you make sure to synthesize all the different critical aspects, you know, serving the country and serving your family and your community and, and all of that in one individual life? How do, you, how do you deal with that? Well, it's a very delicate task, uh, walking the golden mean. You know, I try as hard as I can. Family is very important to me. Uh, my wife has been really supportive. We've got eight kids. Their three young ones are still at home, and they are actually now with the uh, circumstances have been down 
in DC since the beginning of March. So it's very nice to be together all of the time and have dinner together every night. But we have to ensure that we organize our priorities right. And when we're on work, we're on work. And when we're off work, we're off work. And so that means, you know, giving the kids and giving my wife the time and attention that they require. From where I'm sitting, I find an important part of achieving balance is to making sure that I'm in tune with my needs. And so my needs are, you know, not just the basics of sleeping and eating properly, which are very important, but I keep up a, you know, regular learning schedule with my Rebbe and with my Chavrusa and pretty good on the exercise front. So I, you know, when, when it all comes together, things are good. And sometimes when it gets really busy uh, on a particular matter, like right now, we're in the middle of a very large stimulus program. So we get a little bit off kilter, but uh, I try to stay as close to the golden mean as possible at all times. Wonderful. Well, I definitely, uh, our organization benefited from that stimulus uh, package, as, as you know, so many others have. So thank you for that. And thank you for sharing your time and your wisdom and your amazing decades of experience. Mitchell Silk, Moish Silk, Assistant Secretary, Treasury for International Markets. I hope I still got that. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thanks a lot. Take good care. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at jewsyoushouldknow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.